Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Kim. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, As you were saying before we hit the record button, it does seem like we're old friends, like we've known each other forever, but yet we've never been in the room before and we haven't. (laughs) Uh, But we've all been making good friends and getting to know our colleagues, uh, et cetera, et cetera, in the midst of this pandemic. I think we all have all proven ourselves to be quite um, adaptable, uh, and you're right. We have uh, we have gotten to know each other using platforms like this and and social media. So I'm delighted to have you here today, Kim. Before we dive into our conversation, how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you so much, Jason. I um, 
Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast for many years and we've been engaged on LinkedIn and so forth. So I do feel like we've known each other a really long mm-hmm. time. And I, so I appreciate very much the opportunity to, um, to come and talk with you. I thank you for the invitation. Um, my name is Kim Jennings and I served in nonprofit organizations for almost 20 years. Uh, the last 10 of them were in K-12 mm-hmm. and um, every day, you know, driving really hard to reach our goals, you know, working with wonderful people. I was very passionate about the missions. I was um, in uh, serving organizations that I really loved. And every day, you know, I'm running breakneck speed, um, just crushing our to-do list, working so hard, go home late every day and put my kids to bed and then get the laptop back out and get back to work. And, um, all in an attempt to basically climb back up on top of the pile (laughs) so that the next day, you know, at least I wasn't starting the next day buried already at the start of the day. So I just knew that that pace really could not continue. And um, my colleagues were in the same pace and it was just a lot, a lot. So So when somebody, so when somebody says to me, they've been in the field 20 years, I always turn back the dial and say, so were you fundraising before or after September 11th? Cause that's, it's been about 20 years from now. That's a, I started, I started my 20 year, cause I'm, I'm, I'm got a very similar timeline. So I started mm-hmm. shortly, uh, uh, shortly or six months before six months, not maybe nine, six months. So it was before or after September 11th when you started. So I started actually I started working in nonprofits as marketing and public relations uh-huh. And that that was right after September 11th. Right after, okay. In yeah. fact, it was like the year after. So, yeah. and then I yeah. transitioned into fundraising about two years after that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a different experience. There's a different sort of orientation to the world if you were raising money. Mm-hmm. Like I've had a number of guests on here who um, <clears throat> were raising money for the you know, sometimes some, I mean, some folks have, were raising money in the 80s, certainly. And we've had a number of guests who were raising money in the 90s. Right. And then there's our cohort who sort of came along right after September 11th, mm-hmm. after the turn of the century. And uh, we've been raising money in somewhat of an unpredictable world mm-hmm. by that definition. So, um, Kim, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. We don't necessarily know ahead of time. I don't know what you're going to. I think I know what some of our common commonalities are in terms of our consulting experiences and so forth, but I have no idea what ball you're going to toss at me. So what do you got for us today? Well, my big idea that I'm going to share with you is um, comes from my own personal experience and then also the experience that I've had for the last almost uh, year and a half working uh-huh. with um, nonprofits and schools all over the country and uh, development yeah. professionals. and. It's a simple idea, not simple to accomplish by any means, and it's not a new idea. But Uh what it is, is we can reduce the number of our development colleagues from burning out, and we can increase the performance of our high-performance teams if we as an industry start to more highly value and develop leaders who embrace a coaching style of leadership, developing culture. Uh, more than a directorial driving numbers style, which seems to be the the majority of well-meaning leaders who who drive it that way. So, what is that? Um, I, I think we've got a lot of control freaks running running our shops mm. and trying to be bosses. So, how does your <laughs> how does your job description of the boss differ? 
if 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 my guests on here have heard me repeatedly uh, describe a lot of our bosses as control freaks, how would your um, it doesn't sound like either of us are particularly pleased with the boss mm. um, either way, but um, how would your how would yours differ from mine? Well, speaking as a fellow control freak, um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think that really it's a matter of of culture and about um, I think that we as an industry, are really deriving a lot of value from the numbers. We're hitting the numbers. The board is happy with the numbers. The uh, leaders uh, want to hit the numbers. And so we spend a lot of time trying to find ways to meet those numbers. Um, And I feel like um, we need just to look inward a little bit and be thinking about maybe we're changing the wrong things. Maybe we're working too much on the widgets. Maybe we're, you know, adding technology or we're changing the KPIs or we're all these various things. But in reality, as leaders, we need to look inward and say, why am I, why do I do what do I do? You know, if we're nonprofits, we're here for a reason. I think that we all seek purpose and meaning. Well, everyone, I think in every industry uh, seeks purpose and meaning in their work. But I think that in nonprofits in particular, that we want to drive a lot of meaning from it. And so why, um, why are we going at it in a way that is really numbers driven instead of um, working with our people to find what drives them? What's their internal motivation? What is their uh, strength? What is it, how is it they're approaching their work? And then when things aren't going right with our team, uh, you know, that things are starting to go sideways or there's conflict or taking a step back, I think is important and figuring out um, how is it that I can meet these folks at their internal purpose and internal motivation. And you've got me, you've yeah. got me sort of thinking, I don't, it's, it's interesting you use, because I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we gravitate. I've been writing about that a little bit lately. We, you know, all of us in whatever roles, gravitate in some cases, often cases, we're gravitating to the nonprofit sector for that meaning. <clears throat> but I don't know that the boss, the boss different than the fundraiser necessarily arrives at the nonprofit to find that meaning in fundraising. Is that part of the problem? Because because I have discovered and you have discovered, you and I have been doing this stuff for two decades. We've discovered, even if we didn't directly intentionally or you know start in fundraising we've developed an ability to find meaning in the fundraising mm-hmm. that ceo who's running the shop never intended to find you know i worked at a children's home that was the first job we had that was where you know we actually went there and we were probably my wife and i both were probably looking for meaning but we didn't go looking for it in fundraising and it was when i went to you know, it was when the fundraising opportunity was afforded to me that that I found meaning in that. But mm-hmm. I still don't know that any CEO who sort of came along would have necessarily found meaning in fundraising. It's almost like they don't want to, or they certainly don't know how. They, they you know, the children's home they came there to find meaning in the little tykes that were, mm-hmm. you know, in their mind homeless or something. Right, and I, yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think of the nonprofit leaders that I know and the school leaders that I know, mm-hmm. <laughs> they generally are coming at it because they love, they do love the mission. They have, their purpose is derived in, in um, making whatever the mission is possible. So whether yeah. they're, you know, the founder of the organization, they're driven by, 
you know, meeting the needs of the the people that the organization serves. So, uh, and certainly in K-12, it's, you know, educating students. Um, but I do think that we as an industry have created this, um, well, I suppose it's interesting. One of the things that we talk about is, you know, quote unquote, best practices. And one of the mm-hmm. best practices that we lean on is that the CEO is the the vision caster, is the one who um, should be out on the road doing some fundraising. And I think that sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And Yes, um, <laughs> I've known a couple of CEOs that I don't want them on the road at all. <laughs> So, you know, it's challenging. And so, but at the end of the day, those CEOs need to, because of the way that our nonprofits are built, that there's fundraising just baked right in, um, you know, there is a need for them to reach the numbers and they tend to drive the development teams to meet those numbers because they got to make the budget. So whether it's a a campaign or whether it's just ongoing operational money, they've got to make that budget. So, um, but I feel like it's interesting that, that there's sort of a, a realization needs to happen that the leaders may not um, be driven and motivated in the same ways as the people who are out doing the majority of the fundraising, but they need to take a step back and look internally and say, you know, what? we need to create a culture where our fundraisers can thrive, where they are self-motivated because they yeah. feel that everything they're doing is making a difference and they're leaning into their purpose as yeah. a development officer. That's how, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. I, 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 I'm reminded of, um, so, and I, I don't want to get up. I don't want to. So I'm, I'm reminded of sub, my second boss. So I was working for a, I was working for a boss. This was in a camping ministry um, for a camp ministry. And he had sort of gone through, Jim had had a number of fundraisers sort of come through and, he, you know, he was notorious for never knowing how to supervise us. I mean, that's actually been a lot of what I have thought about over the years as I think about my own consulting work is, and this sort of loops back to your notion of coaching, Jim, Jim just didn't know how, uh, you know, my first boss at the children's home, actually, he himself had actually leaped into the fundraising role for a short time before he became the executive director, it was sort of like at this organization, you sort of jumped through the hoops and you got these jobs. But, but I don't know, Kim, if Jim, thinking about the, the second boss, I don't, I don't know that he ever wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, honestly, I don't know that he wanted to have anything to do with it. I think yeah. that's, I think that's the biggest pr- money, right. you know, and you've worked with your share of parachurch organizations, so you understand sort of where when you're raising money in the faith context, for example, we're oftentimes rub, bumping up to, against the church, for example. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and there's so many sort of taboos and sort of stigma associated with having anything to do with money that I think they just hire us as, as hired. And this was certainly my experience at that second organization. They just hire us to go out and do something, the dirty work they don't want to do. They don't do. want to do. Yes, I agree with that. And I, but I, you know, the thing that I'm a really big believer in, and I, this is how I coach my schools is that, um, it's a term, uh, turning the tanker. And so the way you turn the tanker is just bit by bit. Right. So I think that we're in a unique 
opportunity, I think, is with nonprofits, there's been a, a lot of change, a lot of turnover. I think that there's going to be an opportunity in the next five, six, eight years to begin to bring up new heads of school, to bring up new CEOs, to train up people yeah. who can come at it in a different way and more value culture and what it means to have a culture of trust and vulnerability. And, um, you know, millennials, as workers are coming in with this same kind of desire, they they want mentors. They don't want to be told what to do. They want people to to work with them and pour into them in their professional development and to grow as individuals in their work. Um, and so I think why should millennials be the only ones to get that? I think all of us, you know, uh, who have been in, in the industry, we all, I think one of the ways that I approach my work, frankly, is that a, a core business value for me is that if we're doing this work, if we've been called to this work, which is tough and we've been called to that, then I think everybody who's been called to that deserves to have the opportunity to do the work with um, great uh, excellence and with world-class competence and in a way that brings joy and well-being, uh, you know, their well, um, strong well-being. And so, you know, I think that that's sort of aspirational, I think. You know, I don't necessarily know that everybody's going to reach it, but I do think that every one of us who are here for a purpose deserve that opportunity to try to get there. And so if we turn the tanker by leaning into uh-huh. um, rising leaders and yeah. helping them to understand how to do that, then I think we'll begin to make to make change. Does, does it have – so it, the, I, I will not name the client. You would know the client. They're a – they're wonderful. They were they were not a particularly good client, but they're they're particularly well known in our space. Um, and I remember working with them, you know, right up until the pandemic. And um, I thought this was going to be great, but what they couldn't have, what this organization did not have, a willingness to budge on. And maybe this is some of what you're getting at. And I want to get to the. I'm 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 trying to get the first half of our conversation to sort of really thread the needle on what the problem is. And then I want to mm-hmm. unpack this notion of coaching as a as a, a new paradigm for the CEO. But I want to but but help me with this. So in the first book, I, I I described what I referred to as sort of this dual orientation towards the mission. So it was sort of two, it was the mission. So you've got the mission sitting there. So whatever the mission is, mm-hmm. and you've got two orientations. So you've got the people that are sort of receiving from the mission on the receiving end, the benefact, the beneficiaries, and then you've got the benefactors. So the people who sort of drive resources and time and and and, and from a you know, it's the people who are giving to the mission. Mm -hmm. And it seems that we have got this mistaken notion that, that the mission is only oriented towards those who receive. And I remember speaking with this group of executive leaders at this particular organization. And I said, it was a private school and they were, um, you know, their, their mission, as you understand, their mission was to the students and that was the only mission they saw and everything. So, so, so it wasn't to the families. It wasn't to the community. It wasn't to the donors. It just wasn't very holistic. It was just reduced Mm -hmm. down to everything is oriented, oriented towards these students. And I thought that's going to get you in trouble. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ultimately that's going to get you in trouble because you're not going to be able to relate to 
in most cases, donors, you know, once the parent, once the, for example, the tuition paying parent has got a 12th grader who's already graduated from high school, the mm-hmm. sort of story sort of ends. And I said, ends. those are also the people you want to now start giving to you in perhaps far more meaningful ways than they could when they were paying your tuition. Right. Um, is that what it is that we've got this sort of this overly reduced, we sort of, we sort of boiled down the mission and there's only one arrow and it only points at the most obvious sort of beneficiary. Is that in there somewhere? I think that is part of it. I do. I do think so. I think that uh, speaking specifically about the K-12 world, yeah, I do think that CEOs and and people who run them, generally speaking, have a difficulty in embracing the full community. I think there's yeah, some, right. you know, some sense of adversarial um, posture toward parents at times. There's, yes. you know, I, so it's definitely, that's definitely part of it. I think that that's really challenged. And, and I think it goes to the overall concept of one of the things that underlies what I'm talking about, which is a culture of trust and a culture yeah. of vulnerability and transparency. And I think that is a very difficult thing for for nonprofits across the board to embrace um, is that sense of transparency. But even deeper than that, I think that leaders, I think that leaders who are leading development operations, yeah, if they were to lean into, um, I, I feel like they are managing, maybe a better way to say it is so they're managing up better than they're managing down. They're so, managing like board expectations yes, rather than, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I so they're driven that. by the numbers, and and the don't get me wrong, we have to meet the numbers. The the accountability uh, to the board is, is significant; it's real. So sure. they have to raise the money. But you know, when things don't go right, or when someone is behind, or if someone is not performing in in ways, or things are different, I think that leaders tend to derive ways of changing the widget rather than looking into the people who are managing the widgets. So for example, maybe we need better technology, don't you know, and maybe we um, need to change the KPIs or maybe we need to, you know, um, add another layer or, you know, you should yeah, be manage. Right. You're saying the, the, the only way to solve our problems is to find something else to measure because what we're measuring now isn't working. Isn't it's... working. Well, <laughs> well, maybe we're measuring the wrong stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know? maybe, or maybe the, or maybe the notion of measuring, I mean, if there's anything that it, it this is, this all you know, pre pandemic, but this notion of that, that, then this notion of predictability, you've got me now. You got me on a predictability kick here. <laughs> I've been picking on predictability. I don't, I don't think there's so much control freaks as they're predictability freaks. Mm. They want some metric for which to then predict the outcomes. I, right. I don't think fundraising, fundraising has somehow. Maybe this goes all the way back, and I, you know, I've been doing my homework on this stuff. If if we go all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century and we we sort of hinged ourselves to PR and marketing and advertising and consumer assumptions, mm-hmm. did we always assume that fundraising was going to always have some sort of measure of predictability built into it? Yes. Is, is that essentially what the oh, – totally. I, I know, I totally know the head of school that you're talking about, the head of school that's sitting there, him or her sitting there sort of – grinding their teeth over what the board's expectations are right. as they're listening to their chief development, chief advancement officer. Right. 
not give them the answers that the, that they know the board wants. Right. And it's interesting what you just said there about the predictability. I, um, you know, one of the things uh, we actually chatted online about it, the, the book range, David Epstein's yeah, book. Yeah, and it, yeah. what we are, I think, fundamentally, we ha- are misunderstanding that we are not in a kind domain, what he calls a kind domain. Right, right, right. And for, for the readers who haven't read it yet, a kind domain is where, um, it's like in sports, where if you if you practice, you know, my son is a baseball player, so practicing, hitting the ball, 100 balls every day, he's going to get better and better and better and better at hitting the ball. Well, that's a kind domain because it's very there's rules known. It's fairly um, predictable, but we're actually in fundraising. We're in a wicked domain, which means that there there are unknown rules. Their rules change. We're talking about people and motivations and passions and, you know, the way that people approach money, both the donors and the people who are asking. So this is a wicked domain. There's no, like, if we do A and B and then C will happen. That's what we're at. We've been sort of building our whole industry on, and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Now you're going to get me on because you know you've heard me talking about that book range, and I love that you picked it. Up. <laughs> I love that you picked it up, maybe because you heard me talking about it or somebody else picking it up. But this notion of kind versus wicked domains has, has really gotten me thinking, Kim, that some of this responsibility is ours, those of us in these advisory and consulting seats. I agree. I think some of us have sold a bill of goods to these heads of schools, these CEOs, these board of directors, that we can come in and somehow create a kind environment, a kind learning environment. And as long as you're dealing with a complexity, messy complexity of human beings, it's not going to happen. No, some of this some of the onus on this our responsibility that we need a new, we need a new generation of advisors that that sort of fly in and get the privilege of talking to these boards and saying, look, your metrics are really out of whack. I think that um, as consultants, we owe it to our clients. We owe it to our own industry. And I think our own character, we need to um, be honest with our folks. And, And I think that we are, that this isn't a here's a book and go take this book. And then if you follow the steps five through 10 and this order, you know, then it's all going to be, and that's not how it is. I mean, in every single one of the folks that I'm working with, there's, it's a different situation, a completely different culture. So you can't, (laughs) you have to really um, tailor the work, but at the same time, it's still all about the people, right? It's so the people that you're working with, the leaders and the people who are out, you know, the, the gift officers, for example, coming at it from different, um, backgrounds, different skill sets, different motivators, what do they each need? And then being able to, as consultants, I feel it's our privilege and our our responsibility to lean into them as the people that they are and not just say, well, you need to be having 150 meetings a year and da, 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 da. You know, that's just not, um, I just don't think that that's serving them well. So, so one of the things that we do when we go in and we'll do some sort of assessment or feasibility study or something, one of the things we'll do is we talk about the difference between sort of the, the quantitative capability, the big C, one of the big C's that we talk about. It's the idea that 
you know, the capability, the capacity of your donors. You 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 want to know. You want to have a general sense of what the capacity of donors are. And you don't want to be chasing after donors that perhaps don't have the capacity to to perhaps achieve the goal that you want to. But but what what we what I have found in some of these schools, and you're talking about vulnerability and stuff, and some of these donors. Some of these donors are, you know, they're tuition paying parents and they're, so they're in their late forties, early fifties, and they don't mind hiding behind what I call hiding. They don't mind hiding behind their, their inability, their, their lack of capacity, which is to say, I don't have the money to give to you. Right. Mm -hmm. But what they actually, what I have found is their action. This is, this gets back to this notion of a wicked learning environment. They're, they have the capacity. They have the capacity. They don't know how to give it. You know, they don't know how to write a check for $50,000. They've never done that before. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is they don't have the confidence. That's one of our other C's at responsive. Mm-hmm. They don't have the other C and they don't have the confidence. They don't have the confidence and the commitment. They're in love with something else or they're in love with what the church down the street's doing. You know, they're, they're a member of a local church or something or putting wells in Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that what it is? Is that we don't understand the messy complexity of what's going on and we've got donors that are perhaps hiding behind things like, I mean, you could hide behind any one of those things. I'm in love with something else, but I'm really not confident that your board or your strategic plan, you know, reflects you that you know what you're doing. Is that what's going on? I, you know, I think a little bit. And I feel like the folks who are sitting across the table from that person that you just described yeah. Um, the person who's sitting across the table from that parent yeah. knows this and they, they are in the middle. In my, in my opinion, I think they're in the middle. They want to meet that donor uh, where he or she stands and they want to both serve the organization. The, um, the asker wants to serve the organization yeah. to make the mission and get the gift. But at the same time, they also want to serve that parent and, um, and their sense of being a part of something special and making a difference. And I think that the gift officer then is caught in the middle between trying to bridge this gap, but then someone's coming up on top of them, the leader who's saying, well, why didn't you ask so-and-so for right. such money? Right. And they're like, well, they're not ready. Well, they're yeah, but the ready. fiscal yeah. year end next one month and they're going, and you know what, it's, it's May and they're going away. Now you've lost your chance. Well, that, I mean, this is very gross generalization, but it's the, you know yeah, what I mean? It's, well, it's challenging. You- you totally get the again again for for the sake of my listeners, our listeners who are not in sort of the faith based space, uh, they may not appreciate this. But I, most of my most of the organizations I've worked with will appreciate this, no matter whether in the faith based space or not. I've always found that the best fundraising, Kim, is pastoral work. It's pastoral mm-hmm. in a sense that you're sort of yes. discipling, if you will. So it, yes. and it begins with a point of discernment, and so those are all like churchy words. But if take the take the religiosity out of it, isn't the best fundraising that you and I are advocating for? And when we put things like wicked learning environments into it, um, we're talking about being able to discern whether the reasons why a donor is or is not willing to move forward on the gift has anything to do with their capability. Right. And and there's a pacing that just comes with 
I mean, is it shouldn't education? I remember somebody telling me one time that education ought to be the best at this because they understand that it takes 13 years to take a five-year-old and turn them into a, a relatively functioning, functioning adult, adult, right? It takes 13 years. Well, if it takes 13 years to turn a kindergartner into somebody who can go out in society and 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 perhaps change the world as we like to think that it does, why don't yeah. we afford the same level of patience to our donors? Mm-hmm. And then why don't we enlist? I mean, is that, is that, is, you know where I'm going there. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I, and I think that it's really just going to be, and, and, and part of my, my big idea statement sort of gets, I, th- I think, and I hope to get to the heart of it, which is, I think that our industry has to more highly value leaders who embrace the style of leading where, yes where it's not all driven by, you know, if in fact we are able to, to lift up the cult, you know, our eyes to a different set of standards, like a culture that values the individual fundraiser, a culture that values generosity of all kinds um, from donors, from, from the internal staff. I mean, there's, I just feel like if we were to be, to pour into culture, rather than necessarily tactics, go to this conference, pick up this tactic, and then we're going to trick, twi- uh, tweak this and try that. And <laughs> But if we were to really spend a lot of time growing a culture that values the individual and both the donor's motivation and the donor's journey uh, in generosity, but also the asker's journey in generosity um, and their professional development and their personal meaning, if we were to pour all of that into it, I think that the fiscal year end dialing for dollars bananas world that we <laughs> tend to get ourselves into um would naturally begin to to change i think that would happen over and so years. are we getting it right and and i've watched that and i i've watched and heard that story sort of play out in big um, we, we've heard that story sort of play out in higher education and in healthcare, where the CEO mm-hmm. tension about who is the CEO, who are the senior most leaders who are leading these institutions, and are they what um, the the one chapter I didn't put in the first book was the notion of a fundraising CEO and some of the some of the but but I think some of this too this is a good turn in the conversation is some of this rooted at the idea. So as we begin to think about, because I think what you just said, Kim, is that we're about, we've sort of perhaps come to a head where we're going to start expecting a generation of talented executives who also have the skill of fundraising Mm -hmm. to sort of lead these institutions. But has some of this come, some of this messy predicament that we're in the midst of, because we've doubled down on, and this gets back to, uh, to Epstein's book, Mm-hmm. We've over-professionalized fundraising. Mm-hmm. We have yep. over-professionalized it. Rock stars, when I think of the consulting, yep. when I think of the consulting work that I do, I mean, look, I've got every, I've got all the evidence of having professionalized my own skills as a, but, but fundamentally, I, I have come to the conclusion after two decades that fundraising is a skill, and it's a skill that oftentimes we have to teach the CEO mm-hmm. as a skill. Not as a professional, not as some sort of necessarily a credential. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I think because I think that people 
generally who are able to embrace the skills and be really, really good at a certain aspect, really good major gift officer or, or whatever it is, and really hone those skills doesn't necessarily mean that they've honed the things that should go along with them as a leader, which would be the sensitivity to culture and the value and the, you know, build, knowing how to build trust on the team in order to, to work as a team to the ultimate goals that are, that are put before us. So, yeah, I, I not, you've used trust a couple of times and I want to make sure I, cause you, you kind of started with trust. Who are they not? Are they, are we not earning the, is the CEO not earning the fundraisers trust? Is the CEO not earning the donors trust or is it just a, a lack of trust altogether? I have, <laughs> I, I would say that in what I've not, of course, obviously not everywhere, but what I have observed yeah. Um, in all aspects of, you know, nonprofits and schools across the board, there is a sense in some places of trust lacking across the board. So the constituents don't necessarily trust the administration. The administration doesn't trust their folks. Their, the board is not necessarily trusting of the administration. It just goes across the board. And I think- yeah. It's a challenge because um, we're asking our donors to trust us when we're out asking for money. When when I was a, a fundraiser, front sure. fundraiser, um, we're asking our donors to trust us and trust that we're doing the right things with our dollars and that we're you know we're doing what we say we're going to do. We're keeping our promises, um, and so if we're asking our donors and we're cultivating a sense of trust from our donors, then. I feel like that needs to permeate all the other aspects of our work. And so when we are, I guess an example might be, you know, if we're coming up on a. Um, okay. But I got to ask you that who, yeah. who least I, I get the benefit. Of, I'm the host here. Who the <laughs> least, who, <laughs> who least trust who? I think the development officer. Well, Think about that for a minute. Who the That's least? A tough one. <laughs> yes, simmer on that. Who least trust who? I think least the. If you were to say, I think it's a toss up. But if I had uh, to choose one, I would say that the leader tr- trusts does not trust the the team as much as they should. The CEO doesn't trust the fundraiser. In terms of well, no. So let's let's back up a little bit. So let's yeah. in the instance that I'm talking about, not necessarily the CEO, but say the the chief okay. advancement officer, yeah, yeah, and then the frontline fundraisers. Um, I okay, think okay. generally speaking, that happens. I think the CEO across the board in all of the schools that I've seen and all of sure. the nonprofits. I think the CEO the CDO relationship, generally speaking, is is really quite good. But it's the folks who are on the ground who are being asked to do xyz oh it's the fundraising so you're describing a fundraising department leader yeah yeah right now that's what i'm talking about yes you're talking about a divisional leader who doesn't trust the people on the front line who's out in the field right and then so the divisional leader is laying down you know these are the things i need you to do and these are the times i want you to hit them well then it causes I, i think there's a lot of friction there and has that person because I'm sure you're simmering on some experience because I've been there. I've seen that. Um, has that person, that divisional leader been out in the field themselves at any point in their career? Yes. The ones that I've seen. 
who oh, are in this predicament okay. have been. So they but know I, how to navigate that. So they yeah. know the, that it's messy out there. Right, they, know they that do. It's unpredictable. But I think they're receiving pressure from above. So that's what I mean by <laughs> earlier, because they're managing up rather than managing down. <laughs> yeah. So they're they have, you know, I think they are very well meaning, and they have a lot of pressure on their shoulders to meet the the needs that the board or the CEO or both are laying on them. So they have a lot of pressure on them, and so they are expecting their team to perform. And when their team doesn't perform in certain ways, then there must be some reason. And it probably lies in their mind with the person, the, the person on the team. Well, so, but I, what my thought would be is the leader then, rather than necessarily assuming quickly that, oh, well, it must be that they need more training or they need this or that or the other. Perhaps they need to just sit down and talk with the person and say, what is, uh, what's motivating you for this work? What, how can we, you know, I, cause I think part of it is in it, literally the tactics of managing the team, I think can be changed and tweaked and made stronger to create a culture where people are excited to work together and excited to, to meet the goals together. So so we have a we have a practice. We have we have five deliberate practices at responsive when we're super in this dynamic of supervision. So when we're talking mm-hmm. about KPIs and performance expectations, et cetera, et cetera. And one of them is is that we we only want development. We don't want development officers doing more than half of their meetings out in the field solo. So it's what we call uh, subs in teams. It's the notion of doing subsequent meetings mm-hmm. in teams. And it's interesting that you sort of put the finger right at the place where I would argue we've got too many people out in the field, right? Too many people on the road, quote unquote, on the road, in the field, by you know, however you want to put it. And we got too many bosses who are not out in the field with them who really have a sense of what the hell's going on. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. I do agree with that because I think that when you become the boss, you you know, you've been in the front line, you've done the work, you know what it takes to do it, right? And then you get up and you become the boss. And then now all of a sudden you're managing whatever, you know, 20, 50, however, whatever number of people on the team. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a totally different skill set. Does this person not want to do it anymore? Did they not never fall in love with fall in love? Did they never fall in love with fundraising enough that like one of the things I re- recall when I, because a lot of my consulting work now reflects the angst of not fig- of figuring out how to supervise development officers out in the field and, and also wanting to at times be a fundraiser myself. Mm-hmm. But is some of what we're talking about, because this, this goes back to where you're beginning, Kim, this is exactly where you started. I love being a coach because I also love raising money. Mm-hmm. Well, I see, but see, I think Jason, that what you just hit upon is exactly one of the things that I would say, which is many of the folks that I've come in contact with do love to raise the money and Uh they, they love it most. They love it more. It's what they love. More than being a coach. And so they get in the way. They don't necessarily know how to be a coach. They know how to, they know how to tell people they they send folks to conferences or tell them to read books or to do whatever and 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 they so they're good at directing their team do this yes. do that yes more so than leaning into them and coaching them and 
the way that they would lean in and, and, and speak to donors and be along with a, you know, be along with a donor on the donor journey. So, so they've never learned how to intuitively even manage themselves because they're not, because they, what you're describing is someone I'm guessing who knows that fundraising is a discerning pastoral like practice, mm -hmm. but they've never sat down and contemplated it in such a way where they actually realize that, that if I was my own boss, I probably would quit on you. Is that right. kind of what you're yeah. describing? And because, and well, they've never been managed that way either because right. as they right. were coming up, you know, through the, through the ranks, so to speak, they, yeah. they, that was the style of leadership there. So I feel like if we as an industry were able to turn the tanker a little bit and begin to um, value a style of coaching more yeah. so than directing, yeah. then we would begin to make change. And I think you know, we would have more higher performing teams because people would lean into one another and support one another in really remarkable ways. I think that, you know, our issues of folks leaving the industry would diminish or at least yeah. go away, you know, some because there'd be higher yeah. satisfaction. And yeah. um, I just think that for right now it um, leaders, again, gross generalization, but I think that leaders in our industry tend to think it's easier because of the time factor and the tyranny of the urgent and all of the yeah. things coming down on them and they have to meet their goals too. So I think it's easier and faster for them to just tell the team members what to do from a, from a distance and say, these are what you need to do. We'll meet in two weeks as a team and we'll go over, see where everybody stands and then everyone go away and do your own thing again. And that's not what I would advocate would make the difference for a culture and would make a difference for a team and would make a difference for meeting the goals of an organization. I think that leaders should spend more time one-on-one -on -one with their folks. I yeah. think that, you know, building a collaborative effort rather than handing down, you know, these are your KPIs and, and I'm going to measure you against these. Well, having a more collaborative effort there and actually following up on those, you know, I find, in my 20 years, there were very few times where I had bosses remember to follow up on my performance reviews at times. You know, it was very spotty. So, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm out there killing myself, trying to do the very best I can based on what I think my expectations are, but I'm not getting that active feedback. And the other thing I think that leaders can do in a real sense is to be really intentional about how they lead meetings and speak to the team members and speak to one another. You know, I feel like there's a quote, you know, rallying the collective over the individual. Yes. Well, if we were to work as a team and I, and I think this extrapolates all the way out, especially in the K 12 world extrapolates all the way out to donors. If we were to work as a team and value the collective, we could get yeah. so much further in yeah. meeting our goals um, rather than having a couple of really awesome rock star folks. You know, I think, which is fine and good. But, you know, if, as long as they're a part of the team, I hate to bring it up, but I was in Boston for 16 years. So it's, it's like the Patriots. They work as a team. You know, they have amazing players. But when they worked as a team, they were able to accomplish incredible things. I think that the valuing of the collective is really important. And I think that sometimes in the day-to-day -day tyranny of the urgent and the drive to meet the goals that are placed upon us by our boards and CEOs, um, you know, that we lose sight of that and we have to just get it all done at all costs. You, and one more question before I let you go, we lose our listeners about 45 minutes. We've got time for, is, is part of this, 
because I, I think I think what you're getting when I think about because I know a handful of people who are struggling. So so if we were sort of if we were talking about a pendulum and we were talking about some of the people that I've worked with, say recently, but even some of the people that I've worked with throughout my career who sort of swing to the the sort of from the supervisory sort of managerial role to that coaching leader that you're describing. Is some of this a complete shift of identity? I mean, are we talking about, like, I like to think that I, I don't know that I've ever been particularly good at either, but if there's any, I I can tell you right now, I was not a very good administrative managerial sort of that type of supervisor, but if there's anything that I've focused on sort of knowing and understanding, it's definitely my identity as a coach. Mm. Is some of that built in there? That we just don't have the identity. You think about these K through 12 schools that you work with. Some of them, their identity is so wrapped up in the notion of being educators. Mm-hmm. So being a coach. Mm-hmm. Like we do have a lot of advancement leaders, for example, in the K through 12 school space. They come from advancement. Sometimes they do real well because they are coaches. Mm-hmm. Is that is that part of it? I do think so. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that we as an industry need to um, it's interesting you talk about identity. Uh, you know, I think that every leader doesn't necessarily have to have outstanding managerial skills. You talked about your own skills and strengths. Yeah. It's a perfect example. You as a leader know your strengths and know what areas you're less strength strong in. And so you're yeah. able to, I think there's some sense of, of understanding where we each stand and yeah. then understanding where our teammates also stand so that we can work together as a team collaboratively yeah. and collectively. And yeah. I think once we do that, I just truly believe, you know, that we as a team can be a, a much more high performing team. We can meet the goals uh, even more, um, in a, in a more satisfying way, a way that really brings meaning. Uh, and I think that's ultimately what we're about is we want to derive meaning from our work and come at it from a sense of um, growth and, and, and purpose. And I think when we're coming at it in a sense of fear that we're not going to make the goals or fear yeah. that we're going to let someone down or fear that we're not meeting the expectations or, or even in the most extreme sense, fear that we might lose our job because we've not, you know, met the goals. Um, that I, I think this is a real di- disservice. I think we are much stronger as individuals uh, if we actually come together as a collective. You know, I think it's very another. interesting. I think it's very interesting and important that we sort of point out that, Kim, you sort of bookended this conversation on both ends, this idea of sort of looking for meaning and that isn't that sort of the, the, the messy reality of where we find ourselves in the nonprofit sector is finding meaning in fundraising is a, is a particularly difficult thing to do. Um, you know, people who've been doing it for a couple of decades, like you and I, we've managed to figure that out. And so we've, we've figured out how to sort of be oriented towards both those who sort of give and those who receive, but uh, it's definitely mm-hmm. difficult. Kim, you're a member of the consulting team at Generis, and I want to make sure that before we hang up the, the was before I hit the stop button, I guess that we're not, <laughs> we're not on a phone, um, <laughs> that we make sure that we hear. I remember hearing about Generis. I think I was at a, I want to say I was at a leadership conference maybe a decade ago. 
maybe even longer. Uh, maybe when they were in startup mode, maybe they, they, that was longer ago. But anyway, tell us about Generis. Tell us about the work that you do, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. Thank you, Jason. I um, I in about uh, 2020, I joined Generis, which is a fundraising consulting firm that specializes in faith based organizations. Right. And uh, they've been around for 30 years, working with okay. churches and such. Yeah. But about um, seven eight years ago, we started working really pouring into the nonprofit and the uh, colleges, seminaries, and the K-12 world. And so that's where I really work. Um, most of my time is in the K-12 world. And um, they do, uh, I really feel like um, an amazing job. And I um, have never looked back. I really enjoy working with Generis. And I, my colleagues are pretty amazing all over the country. I like so, to ask, I always like to ask when somebody says that they're a consultant or an advisor to nonprofits that um, I always like to end with this question. So who's the person you want to hear from? So um, I don't get a lot of feedback from these podcasts, but my listeners oftentimes get tremendous levels of, you know, we get, you're, you're going to get 150, 200 downloads on this thing per day for the next week or two. Um, so who do you want to hear from? Who's that person that's going to dial you after listening to this conversation? Who is that person? Who do you want to hear from? I think that I would love to have the opportunity to hear from, a head of school for a K-12 school who is looking to, you know, strengthen their capabilities. Maybe they're looking at a future capital campaign and they know that they have a team that needs to get skilled up and that really needs to be poured into to, to get there, to get ready for, I mean, a capital campaign, for example, is a life-changing experience for an organization. So, um, so that's, that's who I'd love to hear from is a head of school who's wanting to hear what does it take for us to be where we need to be um, in order to be successful in this upcoming campaign? So uh, I would love to hear from you. And, um, and I can be found on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm there all the time, Kim T. Jennings. And um, I really would welcome anyone to reach out to me, of course, nonprofits as well. I just love to meet people from all over the industry and um, continue my own research. I continue my own work, um, hearing what people are experiencing out there. So I would really love to hear from you. Kim, it has certainly been a pleasure. I could talk to you for another hour. Um, it's certainly been a, uh, an enjoyable conversation. Uh, you're always welcome back. Thank you, Jason. I'm so delighted to have been here. It's been a great time. I appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.